0: Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from six thirty to eight thirty with our students. So I hope that the sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. you could open up your Bibles to Daniel, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. We're almost through it. We are almost through the book of Daniel. We started the book of Daniel back in September. And for those of you that are new, let me catch you up with the book of Daniel. Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, God's people are besieged by Babylon, and they are carted off into a foreign land. The temple's destroyed. Jerusalem is left, in de- is left, left desolate. And Daniel is picked to serve the king of Babylon and a couple of his friends, and they have to eat the king's diet. remember they're indoctrinated, all those things, but God is with him, and the Lord sustains him. chapter Daniel chapter two uh, we learned of the nightmare that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and he has the, he sees a statue with four like gold, silver, bronze, and stone and a and uh, and clay and iron and a stone comes out of nowhere and crushes the iron and it forms a big mountain. And God's kingdom is the one that's going to outlive every other kingdom. Daniel chapter 3, we uh, come to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is turned into some animal-looking thing, a beast, because of his pride. He's humbled. Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar years later, sees a handwriting on the wall, and he is humbled and killed. And the Medo-Persian empire takes over Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is praying. He's thrown into the lion's den, right? And so Daniel chapter 7 then is a vision Daniel has of the everlasting kingdom of God, the ancient of days, and the Messiah, or the Son of Man, the Son of Man, divine figure, Daniel chapter 8, we learned about Antiochus Epaphanes, remember, who's going to be coming in the future, who sacrifices a pig on the temple altar. Um, crazy, and how God is forewarning them of what is to come. In Daniel chapter 9, we come to Daniel's long confession of sin and prayer, really on behalf of God's people. And that's where we find ourselves tonight. Two, three weeks ago, we learned of what inspired Daniel to pray. Last week, we looked at the content of his prayer. Tonight, we're going to look at the one who hears his prayer. Daniel chapter 9. I'm just flipping in my Bible. I can't find it. Here we go. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. says this, so Daniel had just made a Confession of sin, he's weeping, he's mourning, he's fasting. Lord, forgive us, restore the temple worship. He's crying, and then verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision in chapter 7, at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. For at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, Consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, seventy sevens really, are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place or holy one. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a Messiah, a prince, uh, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, with a road and a moat and a wall. But in a troubled time, that will happen. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. A Messiah shall be cut off. And shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, judgment. When you think flood, think judgment. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week. And he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. (sighs) Interesting. It was the summer of 2015 when my heart started to simmer and burn with affection for Caitlin. She had no idea at the time. All right. So this was going on. We were at camp, we were serving together and, uh, I mean maybe she had somewhat of an idea because before camp I had gifted her or allowed her, or let her borrow a book by Tim Keller called Prayer and so maybe she got the idea that I had the feels for her. I mean, girls, if guys give you a book on theology, you know that they like you, okay? So that's just right there. And at the time, at that time, all my mind could think about when I started to have these affections for Caitlin, the only thing that consumed my mind was what life would be like with her in marriage. I mean, that's a good thing to think about, but is it a good thing to dwell on all the time? Just fantasizing what life would be like, what marriage would be like, that could easily lead to idolatry or lust and all these things. And I had many godly men to come alongside me, to rebuke me, to counsel me. But there was a moment when marriage was all that I could think about. All I cared about was that future date, if that was to happen, and if it went according to my plan and all these things, right? But the Lord had to rebuke me by saying, not so fast. Marriage wouldn't come so soon. There would be weeks. In fact, I'd be rejected by Caitlin for (laughs) a moment of time. God had to bring me through the ringer and say, not so fast. I want you to learn some things first. Dwelling on the future can be blinders to what is actually going around you at the present. And when it comes to Daniel chapter 9, almost everyone is asking, what are these 70 weeks about? What is your interpretation of the end times? Are you a premillennialist? Are you an amillennialist? A postmillennialist? There are people who won't read commentaries on Daniel if this portion of scripture in 24 through 27 doesn't align with their end time views. And so when they get to Daniel chapter 9, they miss some beautiful things and some instructive things right before this passage. They're all thinking about the end times where they miss some important things here, some glorious instructive truths. They want to focus on the unclear, and verses 24 through 27 are the most obscure, confusing verses in all of scripture. In fact, there's not one New Testament text that quotes Daniel chapter 9. And so it's up for debate, and I'm going to let your study Bibles, let them do the work on those verses, okay? I'm not going to focus on those verses tonight. What I want to do is I want to look at verses 20 through 23 at some instructive truths that I think are instructive for you tonight. And the first truth that we learn from this is to begin by observing Daniel himself. Sometimes we've got to slow down. In verse 20, we are shown what the main concern for Daniel is as an exile. And thus what we should be concerned about mostly. And this is point number one. The first thing we learn is that believers are to be concerned with the spiritual condition of the church's private life. What I mean by that is that you're not a stalker. What I mean is by their private life in terms of holiness and sanctification that we care for people around us, whether or not they're living in sin or not. We see this in verse 20. These are probably some of the longest points I've ever done, but I got three of them, okay? Daniel is so concerned with the spiritual condition of the church. Look at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the lord my god for the holy hill or the temple or jerusalem of my god see daniel is praying confessing his own personal sin but he's also interceding for the sin of his brothers and sisters around him as we learned last week he's making a plea or an argument in prayer that god for his own name's sake would restore the spiritual condition of ancient Israel. Why? Because though God had judged them by sending them into the exile in order to restore them, God's people still rejected God. They did not entreat the favor of God. They did not turn back to God. They would not repent. And I love this about Daniel. He's so concerned about his brothers and sisters in Christ, though he... Old Testament, the future Messiah, right? Those in God's covenant. In our own prayers, are we just as concerned with the spiritual condition of our church, of one another? Or do we just assume that Redeemer Church is the most healthy, biblically sound Nothing could go wrong, or maybe the church that you go to. So we're like, ah, I don't need to pray for them. Everything's going good. Pastor John, he's crushing every sermon. Matt, he's doing great, except when he's driving his truck and his wheel comes off. That actually happened. I'll save that for another time. I was driving with him, and literally his wheel came off his car. Not even joking. Do we just assume that people in your life, group? Yeah, they got it figured out. Typically, confession of sin is just a little caveat in our prayers, but not the primary concern. And this has always been the problem in the church. Even in the 1500s, John Calvin, commenting on this portion of Scripture, he says this. He says, This then, Daniel's guilt focus, is our righteousness, to confess ourselves guilty in order that God may graciously absolve us. This is our pursuit of righteousness, to confess our sins is what he's saying. I mean, think with me, students, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, there's a line dedicated to forgive me of my sin. Forgive us of our debts. Confession of uh, of sin is... Integral to our prayer lives. It should be normative. Calvin goes on talking about Jesus' words when he says, forgive us of our debts. He says, for whom did Christ wish to use this petition, forgive us of our debts? Surely it's all his disciples. I love this. If anyone thinks that he has no need for this form of prayer and confession of sin, let him depart from the school of Christ and enter into a herd of swine kind of funny, but you get the point. Students, confessing your sin isn't something you do one time and then move on to go on to mature spiritual things. Some deep theology. No, if you ever study any God God-fearing men, theologians, they are deeply convicted when it comes to confessing their sin. Prayers of confession... Prayers like the tax collector in Lord in Luke 18, Lord, be merciful to me. Or Psalm 51 should be normative for you and I. Student, we must not get in the habit of just assuming that our peers here, and your brothers and sisters in Christ, are not battling, struggling, besetting sins habitual sins, continual sins. We can't assume that your friend, your peer next to you is just okay. And I think we learned something from Daniel here. He is so concerned with the spiritual condition of God's people. And I think you should be as well. I know many in here that are struggling with the many things, enslaved to body image, resulting in eating disorders. Many of you enslaved to sexual private sins, to fear of man, slave to entertainment, or to your future plans, or you're so discontented with your singleness. We're all struggling. That's what the church is for. It's a hospital of people who are struggling to come and find help. And we are God's means of helping and praying for one another. Are you as concerned with the spiritual condition of Redeemer students? We should not assume that this is the most righteous and holy youth group in all of Rockford, Shame on us for thinking that's self-righteousness, right? We need more prayer. Secondly, and this point flows right alongside point number one. Believers are to be consumed with the spiritual condition of the church's corporate life. So private life, now corporate life, corporate gathering, okay? What do I mean from this? Where do I get this? Well, Daniel, not only is he confessing his own sin and the sin of his, of his people Israel. Look at verse 20. But he's also presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill, the restoring of God's worship in Israel. While I was speaking, verse 21, in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. What concerns Daniel isn't just the private Christian walk of his peers, but also the corporate gathering, the regular gathering of worship. Why? Because there hasn't been a regular gathering of worship in ancient Israel for over 70 years since the exile. More on this. And when I say corporate life of the church, what I mean is the regular Gathering of God's people on the Sabbath to worship God according to his word. That's what worshiping corporately means for us. We do this on Sundays, the regular gathering of the church. I find it so interesting. Why does Daniel in verse 21 mention? Look at the last line. We get caught up in Gabriel coming in swift flight, and I think that's a good thing, honorable thing to get caught up in, but. He, look at the time of when he comes to him. Why does Daniel say that he comes at the time of the evening sacrifice? A few things before that. What we don't see in our English translations is when it says, you see what the word when it says, Gabriel came to me in swift flight. That could also be translated, came to me when I was weary or exhausted. It could also refer to Daniel. So Daniel, he's weary, he's been confessing sin, he's been mourning, and it's the evening sacrifice was around 3 p.m. every single day in ancient Israel. And so he's tired, and Gabriel comes and gives them comfort. Now, why does he say at the time of the evening sacrifice? Well, this phrase isn't just a descriptive phrase. It's not like Daniel got lazy and just said at the time of the evening sacrifice. This should pierce or, or, or make us curious. Why, why does Daniel tell time according to the sacrifices? I wonder if he could read an analog watch. He probably couldn't because they didn't have that, right? Why does he tell time this way? <laughs> why does he tell time about, about the time of the evening sacrifice? Why not just say around 3 p.m.? Why not say in the evening? Why does he use language that refers to the worship of God's people? Well, according to God's law at 3 p.m. every day, the temple priests would make a sacrifice in the morning and evening for the sins of God's people. And so when we ask the question, why would Daniel tell time this way? It's a good question because he has been in exile for 70 years. It's been 70 years since he had even been a part of the evening sacrifice. And it had been 50 years since the last evening sacrifice. So what this tells us about Daniel is that he's still in his mindset, having a worshipful mindset. He's living according to the corporate worship of God. I love what this one commentator says. He says, after decades of time and in a foreign land, he still functions on Jerusalem's time. See, Daniel had been in Babylon, but not of Babylon. His heart and mind and soul are still tied to the corporate worship patterns God had established in his law. And this reveals a deep longing and affection that Daniel has for the restoring of worship. He misses it. It's like when you've been around someone who's lost a loved one. And you're just hanging out with them and all of a sudden they go, I miss my dad. Dad passed away a long time ago. And I don't know why they would, I've been around people that have said that. My mom lost her sister to leukemia and I've I've heard her say that. I, I miss my sister. Why? Because she was doing something that reminded her of her sister, and and it brought back good memories. Well, Daniel's is in exile, and he's he's thinking the same way when it comes to worship. He's longing f- to go back and worship the Lord. He misses it. We all know what this is like: COVID lockdowns. Right? We just had this happened to us, but that was a few months. We're talking seventy years, and Daniel is still. It hasn't been, ah, 70 years, I'm moving on to my own private life, worship at home with me and my friends. No, he's not content. This is not God's design. It wasn't too long ago when the regular worship of God ceased for us as well as a church. Well, some would argue that we still had online worship. We still had online church. But that is less than church. That isn't really church. Why? Why do I make that argument? Because I care about scripture. And scripture is clear that church in the Greek means ekklesia. It means assembly, gathering of people. And where there is not a gathering of physical, literal people, there is no local church. Where there is no live preaching of God's word, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and baptism, there is no church. We think 21st century Western, first world problems, and we say we got church online. no. Listen, when God established his church, he did so without any of this technology. And guess what? It was sufficient. It was good. They had vibrant worship. Many people got saved. They sang the Psalms. They sang hymns. They preached out of the word. They still had bread and wine. They could take the Lord's Supper. In the same way, Daniel, he could have had a private worship service in his own house, but he's not content. He longs for it to be restored. Why? Why? Because he misses the corporate gathering of God's people. And praise God that our church takes seriously the corporate gathering. That's why we've been able to meet and praise God for our leadership. Student, how much of our prayer life and thought life is consumed with the spiritual condition of your own soul and also our churches? The fact that we are restricting the number of people that could come into our doors and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ is not normal. We should plead with God to restore what it should be, right? We should. We care about people's health. We want them to be healthy. But even healthy people, if they don't know Jesus, will be separated from God for all of eternity. We're about the mission here. We're about the mission. And Daniel longs for the corporate Worship and so should we. We should care about Sunday service. We should look for ways that we could serve and get involved. Lastly, lastly, believers not only do they care about the spiritual condition of the church in its private life when it comes to sin and also when it comes to restoring God's worship, but also believers find confidence. They find confidence to stand and live in the Father's love for them. Where do they find confidence? In the Father's love for them. How do we stand in all these pressures and trials, and how do we live for God in a foreign land? We find confidence in the Father's love for us, okay? That's the reasoning here. Look at this, verse 22 through 23. Let's finish this out. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. God heard his prayer. And I have come to tell tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. What a gracious encouragement. This is the main portion of my sermon. I probably should have spent less time on the portions before. But this is the sweetest encouragement that I love. And I want every single one of you to understand here. So the Lord heard his prayer and he responds with sweet words of comfort. For you are greatly loved. Isn't that everyone's desire in here? To find affirmation, to be affirmed by the people that you care about the most. Maybe you're searching for it, but you cannot find it. You won't find it. Unless you look upward. Daniel, think about this with me. How comforting this word from God is. Daniel was just confessing sin. The wickedness. The rebellion. The treachery. The disobedience. Think of the guilt that you feel when you go back into the sin that you've been struggling with. That's where Daniel's at. He's confessing. He's mourning. He's weeping. He's fasting. He's vexed in spirit. Sin has has been consuming him, and he's confessing it to the Lord. And just when you think you'll hear a chastisement from the Father, why have you been sinning, O Daniel? Why? Why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep messing up? You would expect that, but rather, not from our loving Father. What do you hear? You hear the tender words, for you are greatly loved. The word translated deeply loved occurs nine times in the Old Testament, and it means something like preciousness. And there's a similar root word in the Hebrew. It it comes from the word covet. So what God is saying to Daniel is, you are what is desired. I desire you. I crave you. You are precious to me. You're highly esteemed. You are loved. Oh, Daniel, oh sinner, You are precious to me, says the Father. You are desired by me. What? How? How? I just just failed. I just messed up again. Lord, don't you see this man is a sinner? Jesus, don't you see this woman is a prostitute? You're letting her wash your feet? What an amazing word of encouragement. At a time Daniel is spiritually exhausted, drained, and starving for worship. you are greatly loved. This would have assured him that God heard his prayer and that he will answer his prayer. And though his word of assurance is meant for Daniel in this text, I think it could also be applied to you this evening. I'll illustrate this by a story in 1751, this old dead guy, Philip Doddridge, he was a pastor and he was near the end of his life of ministry. And he was only 49 years old. He was dying of tuberculosis. And his doctor suggested the only hope for some limited recovery is a, a voyage to a warmer cli- climate in Lisbon. Well, this woman, Selena, arranged for Doddridge and his wife to travel by way of bath. I guess it was a way, a road. So that she might see and care for them before departure for Lisbon. Well, the morning Doddridge was to leave, Selina came unexpectedly into his room and found him weeping over the scriptures. This man's about to die. And the scriptures were open up in front of him, and he's weeping. And the words that moved him to tears were from Daniel. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. He was reading this passage. Selina could only say, you are in tears, sir, and he assured her, I'm weeping, but these tears are tears of comfort and joy. Why so? Was it not because he sensed that the assurance given to Daniel also belonged to him and to you, if you are in Christ? Christ? Literally, literally everyone in this room, whether you are the toughest, most nonsensitive person ever, or not, we all long to be desired and loved and assured in someone's love. And for us believers, we long to know for certain that we are loved by the Father. But often, like Daniel, our besetting, unconfessed sins, our faithlessness keep us from seeing the riches of God's grace in Christ. And that is normal. That's what sin does. So how do we know as we walk in this life, this post-Christian world, how do we know that we're loved by the Father? How do we know? How can I know that I will be with God in eternity? How can I be assured? Are there conditions that have to be met prior to God loving Daniel or us? For Daniel, the evening sacrifice would have pointed him to the reality we enjoy now. Romans 5, 6 through 8. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What conditions were met in us in order for God to send his only son into the world to die for sinners? None. There's no conditions that need to be met in order for you to know that you are loved. The only thing that you need to know is that Christ died for you. That is enough. You are not loved because of what you do or your performance to Christ. You are loved on the grounds of Christ's performance and love for you. That's how you can know. You look to the cross, and you see your beloved Savior, and you say, "That's how I know." I know. Some people last week said, "Wow, it would be nice for an ain't God to send an angel to let me know that God answers our prayers and that I'm greatly loved." Well, He does that every day in His Word. Sure. While you were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You were loved before the foundation of the world. And those of you who don't know Jesus Christ, the gospel offer of Jesus himself is for you. He wasn't the evening sacrifice. He was the perfect sacrifice on that cross for you. Believers find confidence to stand in the Father's love for them, but not just stand, but to live for them. I want to emphasize this last portion here. Look at verse 23. What is the response to the great grace of God after he says you are greatly loved? Therefore, consider, ponder the word, and understand. Two commands. Two commands for us. Notice it isn't ponder and understand so that you will be greatly loved, but rather the opposite. You are loved, therefore we respond in obedience. We love God because he first loved us. That's the pattern. And how is it that we know that God loves us? Yes, it is by the cross. But listen to Jesus' own words in John 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Student, do you lack confidence right now to live for Jesus? You lack com- confidence in your evangelism? Are you have you been apathetic in your communing with God in the morning? Perhaps you have a very low view of sin in the church or if you're tired of trying to live up to someone's expectations or perform, you see your own self-righteousness and sin, all you need to do is pray and seek the Lord. Confess your sins, cry out to him. And you may not hear an angel say you are greatly loved, but you could hear the words of Jesus Christ. For while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. That's how you know, for God demonstrated his own love to us in that, while wow, we are still sinners. Christ died for you. Let the free grace enrapture your soul and then compel you to new joyful obedience this week. Father God, thank you so much for this passage.